What's interesting in verse 10 here, we have it translated, and, and I think all translations have it, we shall be saved by his life. But the word here that's translated by is literally in. That we shall be saved in his life. Now, the word by in there, I think is it, it's appropriate because of what it's talking about, that we're saved through and, and from his life in us. But Paul is, is kind of foreshadowing what he's going to talk about, about being in his life, about being in Christ. And then another word for this word reconciliation, another word we might use for that is, is exchange. So what Paul's going to start doing then, beginning in verse 12, is he's going to ex- explain what does it mean to be in his life along with this word reconciliation or exchange. What have we exchanged? So verse 12, I think the King James is the word wherefore at the beginning, which I think is a little bit better of a translation because it has an idea of a continuing thought. It's not a brand new, completely different thought. It's a continuation of that. So based on the fact that we've been saved in his life, based on we have this exchange, wherefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. What he's going to do now is he's going to explain the exchange. And he's going to start with the the fact of where we start off with about Adam. So through the one man, that's Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. We can kind of think of it this way. Imagine imagine I wanted uh, a watermelon. I wanted to grow watermelons in my backyard. And that way I don't have to go to the market or the store and I'm going to have my own uh, watermelons in the summertime. Uh, lots of wonderful red juicy fruit in there and I'm just all excited. I get some watermelon seeds and I go and I begin to plant them. However, my neighbor beside me, uh, imagine he really doesn't like me. He must be a Canadians fan. So he's out, he's out to get me. But he's also a geneticist. So he goes into the DNA and he can, you know, tweak the the DNA chromosome and so forth to do whatever he wants. And so because he hates me and because he knows how much I love my watermelon, he decides to go in and to poison my watermelon seeds. And so or maybe poison my first watermelon. And 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 so he injects something into that watermelon that fundamentally changes the DNA so that it now tastes like mud or something. Right? It just tastes awful. It's, it's dry and dusty or something. Everything that a watermelon shouldn't be because he's changed all the DNA structure of it. Well, has he only changed this watermelon? No, he's changed all the seeds that are in the watermelon. So imagine I get my watermelon and I have no idea that this is what my neighbor's done. So I come and I get my watermelon and it's all dry and dusty, but I got my seeds. So I go and I plant their seeds. Well, what kind of watermelons am I going to have? Dry and dusty. And if I took their watermelon seeds and I planted them, what am I going to get? Dry and dusty. And so what we see here is because of that one act that what my mean, cruel neighbor did at the beginning, that death or dust in this case has spread to all the watermelons that are in that family. Does that make sense? In a, in a simple way, that's what, what he's talking about in verse 12. That this idea that death has spread to all men. Because what happened with, with Adam in that garden is when he sinned, that one man, through the one man sin into the world, because of that one sin, that one man death has spread to all of his descendants. All that were in him. Because in essence, we could say that one watermelon, every watermelon to come afterwards was in that watermelon. You change that watermelon, you change everything after it. And that's what what Adam did. Because of that one sin, all that were in him, all of his kind were in him, were fundamentally changed. Because what happened to Adam, happened to who else? happened to us. See, notice what it says here. It doesn't say because all will sin. It doesn't even say all have sinned. See, all will sin or all have sinned might be understood as, well, Adam's sin is what allowed him to experience death. But when you tripped your sister or your brother and you laughed at them, that's what allowed you to now experience death. Your first sin 
allowed you to experience that. That's not what he says, though. He says, because all sins. What he's doing here, what Paul's done, is he has tied all of mankind into the same sin that Adam did. So that when Adam sinned in that garden, all of mankind sinned with him. And because all of mankind sinned, what did all mankind begin to experience? Death. That's, that's from the get-go. That's just the starting point. Are they talking about the spiritual death, total separation from God from there, or the physical death? I, I always assumed it was the spiritual death. Well, the reality is it's all. Yeah, I mean, the, the moment that Adam sinned, he began to experience death. Physically, his body began to march towards death. He began to experience it emotionally. He had shame. He had despair. He had fear. He had anxiety. He also began to experience it in his spirit. He's now separated from God. He's, a, he's apart from the life of God. So the reality is that death was over all of man. Spirit, soul, and body. Now it's interesting here, in verse 13, Paul goes on to say, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed where there is no law. See, we tend to think of um, that sin only occurs when you break the law. No law, no sin, right? But look what he says, For until the law, sin was still in the world. It just wasn't imputed. It wasn't held against sin. How do we know this? Verse 14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the fence of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Let me illustrate it to this way. You have a timeline in your diet, in your, in your notes there. So here's a history timeline. And, you know, Genesis 1.1 has the creation of mankind. So we got Adam and Eve here. Uh, some... 2,500 years later, Moses and the law show up. Uh, some 1,500 years later is Christ's death. That leads us now into the church age, which is roughly 2,000 years and counting. Or not quite yet, I guess, 2,000 years. And then we have the millennial kingdom, which is going to last for 1,000 years. So what's interesting here, between Adam and Moses, was there law? No. Right? No law. The law hadn't come. Because the law doesn't come to Moses. Between Moses and Christ's death, what are we? Under law. Right? All of mankind is under law. Of some kind. That's what he talks a little bit about in more detail in chapter 2 and 3. But there is law. Now, for those who are in the, in, Christians in the church age, are we under law anymore? No. He's going to explain that more. Instead, we have this idea that Christ fulfills the law. And I think that goes on to the millennial kingdom as well. But but here's what's interesting. Is if we put on Abraham on this diagram, where's Abraham? Before the law. Before the law. Right? Now, we put in um, Noah. Before the, law. Before the law. We put Enoch. Before the law. What about all these people? Now, did these people die? Now, Enoch didn't. He got carried away. But what about, did Abraham die? Did Isaac die? Did Jacob die? Yeah. Well, why did they die? Because they had Adam's sin. Because sin entered the world back here. And with sin came death. And so death was in the world and therefore sin was in the world long before the law was there. Now here's what's really interesting with it. For the Jewish person, what's the, what's the single most important thing for a Jew? Law. The law, right? And what Paul's saying here is for 2,500 years, there was no law. And yet the problem was there. The problem was sin and death. The law didn't come in. In fact, looking at our diagram here, we have roughly 7,000 years if you add it up at the bottom here. Only 1,500 of that is actually under law. How important is the law now? Now, it has a role. Don't get me wrong. Directs us to Christ. Don't get me wrong. Law still has a value today. 
for non-Christians. And no, not for Christians, because we're not under law. No, we're not under the law, but it's... We'll get there. We'll get there in chapter 7. Chapter 7 is all about the law, right? But, But what he's saying here is that even before the law, sin was in the world because we saw death. But... It, Abraham and and uh, and Jacob and and Isaac and so forth. How were they saved? By faith. By faith, right? How are we saved? By faith. How is David saved? By faith, right? You see, really, the reality is, all of this, we've always been saved by faith through grace. It doesn't matter where you show up on the timeline. Salvation's always been the same. And some people have said there's no grace back here in the 2,500 years, but grace is all through the Old Testament. Well, if there's no grace, then there's no salvation. Because, see, if, if the problem didn't... If, if man's sin comes when the law comes in, then why did man die for the 2,500 years before? Right? Sin was there. So if sin's here and we're not saved by grace, well, how are these people saved? They don't even have the law to go to. Well, it tells us in Genesis, in, sorry, in, in Romans chapter 4 that Abraham was reckoned righteous by faith. So it was by grace, God's grace, being extended to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David, to us, that allows us to be saved. And the promise was back to Genesis 3, 14, 15. Yeah. That's right. That's right. So even though we hadn't sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, meaning that we didn't have that same opportunity to make that choice, nonetheless, death reigned. Now it's interesting, it says about Adam, it says he was a type of him who was to come. Who's the him here? It's capitalized to make it easy for us. It's Jesus. You see, what Adam and Jesus were, they were two, what, what some theologians call federal heads. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that Adam was the first Adam and Jesus was the second, second and last Adam. Now, when I was a kid, that confused me because I knew well enough if I were to do a census of the people of the Bible that there were a few people born between Jesus and Adam. Right? So if Adam's the first and Jesus is the second, then that didn't make math sense to me. But it wasn't talking about number of people. It's talking about the figureheads or the, the federal heads of, of these essentially two families. That's a, that's a really an easy way to think of it. That there's one family that's Adam's family and another family that's Christ's family. And these are the two heads. And what they do impacts everything in their families. Think of it another way. You have the head of one country, the head of another country. What the heads do impacts everything, everyone in that country. So, for example, if I go overseas and I sign a free trade deal with the Philippines, not the Philippines, but the Philippines, (laughs) have I bound the rest of Canada to that free trade agreement? If I go over and do it? No. No. Because I'm I'm great and wonderful and all, but not that wonderful, right? I'm I'm not I have no power to bind the country. But if Stephen Harper, our prime minister, who for all intents and purposes is our head of state, if he goes overseas and he signs the deal, what has he done? He binds all of Canada, all of the country, because he is our federal head in that sense. So Adam and Christ, they are the first and second and last federal heads of these families. And so what they do impacts us. Which is why, you know, what if, what if, um, you know, death spread to all men because Adam sinned? What happened to Adam happened to us. Well, Adam had a kid, right? Go back to our watermelon illustration. People often say, well, if I, if I fix the watermelon at this stage, then shouldn't all the watermelons afterwards be fixed? So if I get this watermelon saved, shouldn't all the watermelons also be saved? Well, that's where my illustration breaks down here. But the reality is no, because this watermelon is not the head of a family. I know it's weird to think of watermelons and heads of families and such, but the watermelon is not a federal head. 
it doesn't have the same impact that the head does. Did I just make more confusion or? The only problem is watermelons don't get saved. Watermelons don't get saved. No, no, they're they're condemned to a life in my stomach, unfortunately. Um, yeah, but it's it's sort of the idea that you know if your life was you know going up all up the family tree, your life was essentially you know in your parents and your dad. Well, if my when my dad got saved, why did I not get saved? Well, because your dad wasn't like Adam. He didn't have the same federal head as Adam. Your dad getting saved was like me going trying to sign a trade agreement with the Philippines. It has no binding power. Only the head does. And the heads are Adam and Christ. And so when Adam sinned, all men sinned. And so death reigned as a result of that. Well, let's picture that. What does that mean, this idea of death reigning? It's got now this total dominion, total authority over us. So now he's going to contrast that in verse 15. But the free gift... So here's the good news. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died... Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Now I think why in verse 15 he says it's not the gift is not like the transgression. Meaning, how many people died in Adam? All. All. All meaning all of mankind. But how many people <clears throat> received this gift of grace? How many people... Um, did, did the grace of God abound to? It abounded to all, but they had to receive it. Well, it was all in Christ. Because whoever whoever's in, that's who's going to happen to. That's what he's contrasting. Being in Adam versus being in Christ. And so all in Adam is all of mankind, but is, are all, is all of mankind in Christ? No. No. No, so it's all in Christ, but that's a smaller number. If you think about John 3.16, the most famous verse probably in the New Testament, what does it say? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him, that's how it's translated. That's not what it says though. Literally what it says is whoever believes into Him. And I find that really interesting. Couple that with uh, 1 Corinthians 1.30 where it says that God placed you and I in Him. See, when we believed, when we take, made that greatest choice of our entire lives and received this wonderful gift of salvation, God takes you out of Adam and places you and I in Christ. But because not all have believed, not all are in Christ and not all are saved. Right? So that's why the free gift is, is a little bit different from the transgression. The transgression impacted all of humanity, all in Adam, but the free gift only implies and only impacts those who are in Christ. And only those who are in Christ are there as a result of faith. In my NIV, in verse 14, it says, um, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command. And I'm finding that interesting because it doesn't bring us back to Adam. Well, in a way that Adam did have a command. He had a command... Uh, I'm talking about the law here. He didn't have the law in the sense that he didn't have the Ten Commandments. No, I mean in this verse, breaking a command, meaning breaking a law. Well, Adam had a command in the garden, right? Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So that he broke that command. Um, but between... Uh, the garden and the and Moses, how many other commands did God give? None. Well, they still died. Why? So is this then referring back to that original command? Yeah. To the laws? Yeah. It, well, laws in general would be what I would say. That there, they had. Because this is much clearer because that brings us right back to the... The offense of Adam. Adam yeah. 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 All right, verse 16 then, going on. The gift is not like that which came to the one who sinned. For on the one hand, judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulted in justification. One sin damned the world. Many transgressions resulted in one act of righteousness. 
which set us free. Verse 17. Verse 17 is one of those key verses. So we're going to spend some time on this verse here. But verse 17 says, For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned to the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Again, we, we, we mentioned it briefly here, this idea of death reigning. And as we said with Peter, you know, death didn't reign just over our spirit. It reigned over our spirit, our soul, and our body. Physically, our bodies, we experience that. We're marching towards death. My eyes don't see as well as they used to, so I have windows in front of them now. I wake up with more aches and pains almost seemingly every day. Uh, My body's deteriorating. That's because I'm marching towards death. I have been marching towards death from the moment I'm born. And the same is true with you and I. Because sin, death, has dominion over everything in this world. And that's a result of the fall. But death also reigned over our souls. Think about our souls is, is our mind, our emotions, and our will. So it reigned over our minds. Our minds were filled with stinking thinking. We had all kinds of wrong concepts about ourselves, about God, about each other. We might think that other people will be life to us. Or we might think that I am of no value, I'm no good. I have all kinds of wrong concepts in my mind and my thinking. And my emotions are under death. I'm experiencing despair. I'm experiencing anxiety, depression and fear and worry and so forth. And my emotions are experiencing death. There's no joy. There's no love there. And then in my spirit, this is the greatest death that I'm experiencing because I don't have the life of God. I'm all alone. I'm alive unto sin. I don't feel that love. I don't feel that acceptance because I'm not. There's something now fundamentally wrong with me. And death reigns over us. Has dominion over us. I mean, that's such a powerful word. This word authority or dominion or this reigning. It means that that it's not just a little bit. It's not just sort of. It has complete dominion over us. Right? And that's because of the transgression of one man, Adam. And it's a result of the transgression. A single transgression. But the good news is, much more. As powerful and as great as that is, much more, even better... Those who receive the abundance of grace. Now again, it's based on receiving, right? So that's that faith part. Those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. I think in verse 17 that there is a formula here. Now I'm not big on formulas in the Christian life. In fact, generally I say to people, if someone tries to give you a formula to the Christian life that's not Jesus, then run. But... I think this fits that meaning of Jesus because what he's saying here is those who receive this abundance of grace and really what it is, it's the abundance of the gift of righteousness. Right? Look what it says. The abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. Now, I are engineers, so grammar is not my skill, but I know of is kind of out of place here. You would expect it to read the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. But it doesn't say that. It's and of the gift of righteousness. The of goes back to abundance. So really, it's abundance of grace plus the abundance of the gift of righteousness. If we have those two, we will what? Reign in life. Reign in Christ. Yeah. So to understand that then, Let's understand these two parts of the formula. And to start, let's start with grace. Let's give me some definitions of grace that you've heard. Unmerited favor. Getting what we don't deserve. That's a great Charles Swindoll illustration I've heard. You know, he says that justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy's not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. So to give an illustration, justice would be if you're speeding, justice is you get a ticket. Mercy is he lets you go. Grace is he gives you a gift certificate to the keg. Right? That's grace. 
Right? Getting what you don't deserve. Good. What else? Actually, God doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. Okay. What's another one? Many times Paul equates grace to the power of living. Okay. Power to live. Good. What else? God's reaches at Christ's expense. All right. That's the acrostic, right? So you take the words of grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Right? The G R A C E. Good. Another one that I've heard is this unconditional love or forgiveness. I think that grace is one of those words that is multifaceted. And that there's different parts or different elements to grace. Um, if you got your Bibles, go to the Second Corinthians. Chapter 12. And this is the passage again of Paul's thorn in the flesh. And uh, he, he, verse 8, he says, Concerning this thorn in the flesh, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. That was basically him, his way of saying, I prayed a lot for God to take it away. And what God says to him, he says, my God replies to Paul, he says, uh, sorry, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. <coughs> what has God equated his grace to in that verse? His power. Yeah. You see, a lot of Christians, they, they understanding of God's grace is simply what took place at salvation. The unconditional love of God, the unconditional forgiveness, God's riches that Christ expends, getting what we don't deserve. And that's true of grace. But it's only part of grace. You see, there's a whole other part of grace, which is now the power of God. The power to do what I can't do on myself. The power for Him to live the Christian life. And these two aspects of grace are so important. I, I remember one a friend of mine. He was he was trying to teach grace at this camp that he was at, and this lady came up to him, the, the camp director, and says, "You know what? I'm tired of all this grace. We need to stop it. You know, grace only goes up to so, to so much. We now need to teach something other than grace." Well, what she was upset about was she was worried that if you only teach this part, that you're unconditionally no matter what you do. How are people going to live? However However they feel like, right? And they're just going to go and sin, sin, sin and do all kinds of horrible things. Right? And so that's the fear. And so what you're saying is we need to limit how much we emphasize this. But the reality is grace is far more than this. Grace is also the power to live the Christian life. So when you say we should stop teaching grace, what are we saying? We're also saying, well, we don't need to teach how to live the Christian life. Now, that's not what she was saying. She just didn't understand that grace is far more. See, go into 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. No, not 9. 15, sorry. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9. Look what Paul says. He says, for I'm the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God. What grace of that is that? Is that the unmerited favor or is that the power to live? It's the unmerited favor. I, but by the grace of God, by the unmerited favor, I am what I am. Right? By His unconditional love, I'm saved. That's the first grace. And His grace, His unmerited favor toward me, did not prove in vain. But I labored, I worked, even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God. Well, what grace is that? That's the power to live. 
could Jesus be talking about the same kind of attitude as he uh, in uh, uh, Matthew 5 verse 1 blessed are the poor in spirit because they will inherit the kingdom of God in other words total dependence on God because of our because Jesus was could be Jesus yeah was yeah and he lived his life in total dependence on God yeah that's what Paul is saying he too yeah it's that the, the grace of God is more than just the unconditional forgiveness. The grace of God is also now the power to live. Which is why why grace is just, you know, it, it starts with grace, but we continue with grace. There's a great verse, Titus 2, 11 and 12. Verse 11 says, The grace of God appeared bringing salvation to all men. So we often think, well, okay, we start with grace, but now we give them some law to live now. No. You live with grace. Right? Because verse 12 says, that grace of God now teaches men to live righteous, godly lives. Because it's going to empower them to do so. Or you have something like Colossians 2.6. It says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, how did we receive Him? How are we saved? By grace, through faith. So walk in Him. So live in Him. How do we live in Him now? By grace, through faith. It's His power. So let me illustrate it to you this way. And we'll use a bit of an engineering illustration. Uh, There are two kinds of power uh, in the world. Um, In terms of electricity-wise, electrical power, there's one called DC power. This is the power you often find in your batteries. You know, your 9-volt battery, your AA or AAA batteries, or your your cell phones often are are using um, uh, DC power. And if we were to hook up uh, what's called an oscilloscope, something that measures the the electricity in, in terms of the current of a DC power, it would be constant. It's never changing. It's rock steady. It's very solid. So DC power never changes with time. It's static. It's constant. Now, with a battery, often it will decay because it's losing power. But for the most part, it's just reading the same power consistently. Does that make sense? Now, let's contrast that with something called AC power. AC power is what's called alternating current. And that's what we find in most homes. Our, our electrical grid is all being run off of AC power. If you were to hook up AC power to the same scope, you would get something that's oscillating over time. It's going up and down, meaning it's constantly changing. It's constantly changing with time. It would be what we call a dynamic power. So DC would be static. AC is dynamic. Do you understand the difference between the two so far? All right, let's apply that now. I think DC, or uh, this kind of grace, this unmerited favor, is like DC grace, or static grace. Meaning, it never changes. It's always there. I mean, does God's love for you ever change? No. His love for you will never grow, nor never diminish. Hopefully, all that changes is your understanding of that growth. But His love is forever there. It's constant. The forgiveness, constant. The acceptance, constant. It doesn't matter what you do, where you are, how many times you've done it, or who you're with. That grace is there. And that's good news, isn't it? But the other kind of grace is what I call AC grace, or dynamic grace. It's the grace, the empowering presence of God to live the Christian life. That's changing with time. That's changing depending upon the situation I'm in. For example, have you ever uh, looked at somebody and, and see how they go through a difficult time? Maybe, maybe they're dying. And, and you look at them and say, I don't know how they do it. I mean, if it were me... I would be flipping out. I'd be worried. But they they just seem to have a peace about them. Well, you know why? Because what God's essentially done is He's given them that grace to handle that situation. We could kind of think of it this way, that they've been giving dying grace. The grace to handle going through a time where they're dying. Or maybe someone has a, a health problem. Maybe they're sick. 
And so what does God give them then? He gives them sick grace. The grace to handle a sickness. Or, you know, when uh, my, my wife, she's at home and she's got five little babies at home. Five kids at home. They're not babies anymore, but they got five kids at home. And, and so what has she got? Well, she's got mommy grace to handle those five kids. And, and I've got teaching grace. I've got the grace to teach you guys right now. And, and thank God you've got listening grace. The grace to listen to me teach. Because the situation we're in, God gives us the grace to handle that. But what I want you to see is it varies from day to day. It varies from moment to moment. Because God gives you the grace you need for that moment. See, what we tend to do is we take the grace we have in the moment, but we're worried about the future. Right? What if this happens? What if that happens? So we try to take this grace and spend it on that imaginary future. And what do we discover? Oh, I couldn't do that. And we get all worried and anxious. Well, the truth is, God hasn't given you the grace to handle that yet. If that future were to come to, to pass, guess what you'd have? The grace to handle it. But you don't need it. All you need is the grace the empowering presence of God to live the Christian life right now. And you have enough. No matter how weak, how difficult, or how uh, trying the trial is, His grace is sufficient. Not will be sufficient, is, present tense, sufficient. So if it's sufficient, why is it going up and down? Depending on the situation. Because some situations are far harder and far more tedious than other situations. For example, do you need a lot of grace when you're sitting on a beach, sipping on a nice tea, reading a nice relaxing book? Not a lot of grace. But when you're dealing with all your kids who are screaming and fighting because they're hungry and it's about five after eight and you haven't fed them yet and you're going out of your mind, you need a lot of grace. So that grace will tend to increase. You, you will experience a greater sense of His power and ability. Depending upon the situation. Ross, that goes back to the tribulation and the perseverance and the building of character. And the yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, here's together, this makes the abundance of grace. And, and here's an illustration that I think kind of shows how these two graces, how they fit together. Do you remember the old alarm clocks that people had? These old digital alarm clocks? Uh, I remember having one of these as a kid. And what was great about it is it not just plugged into the wall, but it also had a battery backup. Do you remember those alarm clocks that had that? You still have one? I had one and I was going to bring it in, but it, it doesn't work anymore. So that was a bad illustration. But I remember growing up with one of these. And what was great is when you plugged it into the wall, you could listen to the radio. It told you the time. You could set the alarm. It could go off. It could do all kinds of things. It was functioning properly, right? But what happened if you unplugged it from the wall? Not the one I had. The one I had just went blank. Couldn't play the radio anymore. Couldn't tell the time. Alarm wouldn't go off. Well, what good was the battery? If you plugged it back into the wall, guess what happened? It came back on, but it wasn't flashing 12 anymore. Because of the battery, what would it do? It kept the clock running. That's the whole the whole point of the battery was backup. Does that you make sense with that? So here's how it works. When you and I are living out of the life of Christ. When we're experiencing the empowering presence of God living in and through us, we're, it's like us plugged into the wall. And His life is flowing through it. You're playing songs on the radio. You're telling people time. You're doing all kinds of useful things. The moment you stop trusting in God, the moment you stop trusting Him, you've unplugged from the radio, from the wall. How much power is being produced or shown on the radio now? Nothing. But you know what kicks in then? The backup now. So when I've unplugged the wall, I'm no longer walking after the Spirit. I'm now walking after the flesh. What kicks in? The unmerited favor of God. The total forgiveness of God. The total acceptance of God. So at any point in time, when I plug back in, I don't go back to square one. I don't have to start all over again. Get saved and, and start from the beginning. I just 
plug back in, start walking with God again. Because that's all he's looking for. He's not looking for penance from me. He's not looking for me to pay the price. Because you know what? He's already paid it. How am I going to add to what he's already done? So when I stop trusting in him, I'm no longer using dynamic grace or AC grace. That's when static grace comes in. Never changing. Love's always there. But at any point in time, I can go back to trusting in him. And this is when I become useful. Right? Does that make sense? So that's... Thank you. So that's the abundance of grace. Well, there's another part to it now, and that's the abundance of the gift of righteousness. Remember, it's not just a gift, it's the abundance of the gift of righteousness. And there's there's a lot of different verses here that we have listed that, that I think is worth looking up here. So we'll start here in Romans 9, and beginning in verse 30. Paul starts off and he says, What should we say then that Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness attain righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith? What does that mean that the Gentiles do not pursue righteousness? Well, what's another way of phrasing that? They didn't care about the law, right? They weren't trying to follow the law. They didn't have a law in that sense. They didn't pursue righteousness, but you know what? They attained it. They were approved by God. How? By faith. Well, how? They didn't deserve it. Well, what is it? It's a gift. Can you earn a gift? By definition, a gift cannot be earned. I mean, think about your paycheck. When your employer gives you the paycheck, you go, Oh, you shouldn't have. Oh, that's so nice of you. What a wonderful gift. Is that what it is? No, what's a paycheck? It's a wage. You've earned it. You've worked for it. Well, righteousness is a gift. It cannot be earned. It cannot be deserved. But it is something that is freely given to you and I. And so, this nature here, the Gentiles, they weren't pursuing it, but they got it. Why? By faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. They are pursuing it based on trying to live up to a standard. They never achieved the standard of righteousness. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. Instead, they thought it were by works. They thought they could earn it. And so as a result, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Who's the stumbling stone? Jesus. Brethren, verse, verse 1 of chapter 10, Brethren, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God. They love God. They're not against them. They love them. But not in accordance with knowledge. They're going about it the wrong way. For not knowing about God's righteousness, not knowing about the gift, in seeking to establish their own, working for it, they do not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They don't receive it. But Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of striving and performing for acceptance to everyone who believes. Because it's a gift. Or we have 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2. This is so great because if you think about the church in Corinth, they were not the model church. You know, it's always interesting when people say, we need to go back to the original church, right? The, the first century church. That's what we need to do. And I think, really? We need to be like the church of Corinth? I mean, they were getting drunk. They were suing each other. They were abusing spiritual gifts. They were um, having church splits. One guy was sleeping with his father's wife. I mean, even the non-believers thought they were a pretty lewd, lewd group. That's the first century church we need to get back to. No, no, that's not what I meant, they say. But but that's what was going on in the church in Corinth. So Paul writes them this letter. And look what he says. Verse 2, To the church of God who is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. Now, are they living like saints? No. And he's going to spend the next 16 chapters explaining that to them. But yet, what does he begin with? What does he call them? Saints. What saint mean? Holy one. Set apart. Yeah. That's what you are. We're not sinners saved by grace. 
We were a sinner and we were saved by grace, but now we're a saint. We're someone wholly different. Or you have 1 Corinthians 1, 29-31. I have a friend of mine, he likes to call this a sandwich, right? So whenever you're making a sandwich, what do you do? Get two pieces of bread. So verse 29 is one piece of bread. Let men no boast. Let, so let no man boast before God. That's one piece of bread. The other one is verse 31. So that just is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Those are the pieces of bread. What do you put in the middle of a bread? Here's the meat. By His doing, by God's doing, you are where? In Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Well, how many people are already redeemed in this room? Well, then, how many people here are righteous? How many people are already sanctified? You can't have one without the other, right? Still in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is... And that is what you are. Could God reside in an unclean, unholy, unrighteous temple? No. What would happen if sin entered into the Holy of Holies? It's bad news for the guy that brought it, right? Because God won't tolerate it. But yet God now resides in you. What does that say about the inside of you and your spirit? It's holy. It's clean. It's pure. The holy of holies. In fact, you can't get any holier than you are right now. Right? I mean, think about it this way. When, when Moses sees God in the burning bush, and he walks up to it, what does the burning bush say to him? What does God say? Take off your shoes because I just swept and I don't want any more dirt in this place. Is that what it says? No. no. Take off your shoes because you're on holy ground. What was so holy about that ground? God was there. God was in the bush. That's what made it holy, right? Well, now God resides in you and I. That's what makes us holy. So you better take off your shoes. You're holy ground. You don't have to take off your shoes. 2 Corinthians 5.17 He's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things not are coming, not will come, but have come. Past tense. We're already a new creation. Verse 21. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So what God has done is He's already made you and I righteous. He's already made you and I holy. God did it all, not you and I. Ephesians 4, 24. This is another great verse. And Paul says, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. How righteous are you? I mean, if you've been given the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, and you've been created in the likeness of God's righteousness, how righteous are you? As righteous as He is righteous. It's His righteousness. But here's the thing. If someone gives you a gift, who does it become? If, if I gave you a gift of a watch and, and you put it on and, and someone says, hey, nice watch. You might say, well, Ross gave me this watch. But whose watch is it? It's your watch. Because that's how a gift works, right? So if God gives you the gift of His righteousness, whose righteous is it now? That's a gift you and I need to own. We need to hold on to. Now, I didn't earn it, and I don't deserve it, and I don't maintain it. That's all God's job. But He has freely given me His righteousness, and therefore I'm now as righteous as He is righteous. Philippians 3 and verse 9. Paul says his desire is to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, 
not based on my good works and what I've done, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That's the righteousness we have. And then Hebrews 10 and verse 14. Another powerful verse. For by one offering, He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. By one offering. For all time. You and I are now perfect. Right? Do we live perfectly? No. But your righteousness isn't based on your behavior. Right? But here's what's interesting. As we accept the abundance of grace, as we receive the abundance of grace, and as we receive the abundance of the gift of righteousness, what's going to happen to our behavior? It's going to change. It's going to be impacted. But my behavior doesn't change this. Here's, here's what I've noticed. When, when you're struggling in life, when you're, when you're dealing with something and you're not experiencing this reigning, when you're not experiencing victory, that instead you're experiencing defeat, chances are, this is why I think this is you know, a, a somewhat decent formula, not that I'm a fan of formulas, but somewhere in here you're, you're lacking one or both of these. Either you don't know who you are or you don't know about the power inside of you. Either you're trying to do it in your own strength, which will lead to defeat, because it's flesh. Or you don't know how loved and accepted you are, and you're striving to become loved and accepted, and therefore will end up in defeat. Because you're both will be living out of the flesh. So really what happens is we need to take these two and put them together. And for me, when I'm, when I'm working with people one-on-one in the counseling environment, I, I find it truly helpful. I can look at somebody and say, well, do they understand grace? Do they understand that Christ lives in them? And do they understand who they are and the righteousness of Christ that now lives in them? And wherever they're lacking, that's probably why they're coming to me for counseling. It's probably why their marriage is on the rocks. It's probably why they're, they're looking to pornography or looking to alcohol or it's probably why they're just miserable in life. It's because they're missing one or both. So you can sit there. I mean, you can think about some people in your life that maybe that's true. But more importantly, maybe look at your own life and say, well, how well do I understand this idea of Christ living in me? And how well am I trusting in the fact that I am the righteousness of God? Is that maybe why I'm not experiencing the victory that I want to? Or is available to me? So, added the abundance of grace, the abundance of the gift of righteousness will reign in life. And here's the key, through the one Jesus Christ. Don't forget that part. That's why this I can say this is a decent formula, because it's all about who? Jesus. Without Jesus, you can't make that formula work. But it's all through Him. All through His power. Right? And notice what it says there. The, those who receive. Meaning it's there. It's freely given. What do we need to do now? We need to lay hold of it. We need to grab onto it. And what, what does reigning in life look like? Well, I think it's now the opposite of what that death looked like. Now, instead of being separated with God, from God, I'm united to God. I'm in Him. He's in me. Do I ever need to pray that God would be near me? No. I'm one with Him. I can't get any closer. So that separation is gone. I'm now united with God. And now I'm loved. Now I'm accepted. All the needs of my spirit are now satisfied. But also in my soul. Now my mind is being renewed to truth. It hasn't fully been renewed. It's being renewed. So all the faulty thinking is being replaced with truth. I no longer have a false concept of myself, of others, of God. It's slowly being repaired. My emotions are being healed. So instead of that despair or that emptiness or that loneliness or that anxiety and the fear and the hatred and the bitterness... 
I'm beginning to experience love for other people. Hope, joy, patience, kindness, the fruit of the Spirit. And my body, even though my body is still marching towards death because I got sin in my body, I even begin to experience life in my body. As he's going to explain when we get to chapter 8. But life begins to reign through my whole being. As I trust in Him. As the life of Christ is being manifested through me. Amen? Amen. Rob, yeah. In the King James Version, 2 Corinthians 5, says 17, uh, the last part of that verse says, Are become new. Present tense. Uh, are become new? Yeah, that's the way it reads in the King James Version. So, I thought that was a process that carried on after salvation. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to look that up. I'd have to look that up. That's interesting. Yeah. I wonder what the tense is. It might be that it's uh, like the perfect tense. Um, the perfect tense refers to... Sorry? I'm not an English. No, neither am I. But the perfect tense refers to a past event that has ongoing consequences. So, you know, for example, um, I was and am married. So nearly 11 years ago, I, I was married, but I remain and it has ongoing consequences that I'm married today. So a perfect tense would be, I was and am. Past tense and present tense. Um, so I wonder if it's a, if a perfect tense in there. I have, I'd have to look that up though and study it out. But, um, but I know the other translations all have it as a past tense. But I heard you say that we are, and the Bible teaches, we are sanctified by faith. But I've had teaching that our sanctification becomes more and more as our faith grows. Yeah. It, and, and really, it depends on how you understand sanctification. I think there is an ongoing growing, and that's true. Um, in terms of how I think, in terms of the choices I make, that's ongoing improving. But in terms of who I am, God sanctified. I am sanctified in my spirit. Yeah. yeah. I'm understanding this better than I ever did. Yeah, I think if we break it up in the spirit, soul, and body, that I am sanctified or justified in my spirit. I am being sanctified. I'm being made whole in my soul, and I will one day be glorified in my body. That's kind of how I how I approach it. All right. So verse eighteen. So then, kind of a, a you know to to sum all this up. So then, it's through one transgression that resulted condemnation to all men. The word condemnation here literally means to be judged, to be found insufficient, and rejected. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that wonderful news? That because of that one transgression of Adam, we were all judged, found insufficient, and rejected. That's how we arrive here on planet Earth. That's why Jesus says in, in John 3, I think it's verse 17, maybe 18, 17, I have not come into the world to condemn the world because the world already is condemned. Yeah. See, we are condemned from the get-go. That's the mess we're in. It's not that I wonder what's going to happen on Judgment Day. That, ain't, that was settled in the garden. Even so... Through the one act of righteousness, what's the one act? Christ's work on the cross, there is all the justification of life to all men. Now the all, again, is all in Adam versus all in Christ. And so all in Christ, their life, their person has been justified, made righteous, approved. So if condemnation is your judge found insufficient and rejected, Justification is you're judged, you're found sufficient, and you're approved. And that's true because we're in Christ. Verse 19, For as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. So how many sins did you and I personally have to commit to become sinners? None. I mean, people often think, well, it's one sin. No, zero. You're born that way. Well, if that's the case, how many righteous acts do you personally have to commit for you to become righteous? None. 
Zero. See, what, what a lot of pastors I hear do is they say, well, this is just a positional righteousness. You know, it's just true up in heaven, but not really true down here on earth. Down here on earth, we're still sinners. Well, think about that logic, because we got to apply that logic not just to the second half of the verse, but to the first half of the verse then. When you and I, before we knew Christ, were we just positionally sinners? Just sinners in God's books, but not really sinners down here on earth? No. We were actually sinners. Well, if that's the case, then you've got to apply the same logic to the second half of the verse. That you're not just righteous in God's books, but you are actually presently right now righteous here on earth. You're a saint who sometimes sins, but still a saint nonetheless. What we've done is we've, we've attached the label of sinner or righteous to your behavior. Letting your behavior determine who you are. Well, think about that for a second. If I bark like a dog, does that make me a dog? If I sleep in a garage, does it make me a car? No. Maybe a little certifiable, right? <coughs> cold, because it's still cold out there. But I'm still what? Still a person. Acting like a dog or acting like a car. But that's not who I am. Right? Well, what God has done is He's fundamentally changed us. And the question is, do you know who you are now? Because when you know who you are, abundance of the gift of righteousness, coupled with the abundance of grace, the power of Christ to live the, the, live the Christian life through you, we will reign in life through Him. Does that make sense? What I find interesting here is kind of the order here that He gives. That there is a first a death, then there is a condemnation and then we're made sinners that's interesting to me if it was the other way around if it was sinners condemnation death then the solution would be stop being sinners then you're not condemned and then you'll have life but that's not the order it's death condemnation sinners and the answer is life righteousness or approval and sainthood holy Meaning that when you receive life, that's what makes you approved, that's what makes you righteous, and that's what makes you a saint. You see, if it was the other way around, it would be all my behavior. It's up to me. But it's not. It's up to Jesus and what He has done. And because He's done it, I can rest in it. I can be fully persuaded that what He has done, what He's promised, is sufficient. And is enough. Amen? Any questions at this point? I think that some translations have actually thrown a lot of confusion into this because of the fact if I read the Bible and it says that I have a sinful nature. Yeah. I'm, really yeah. Wrong translation. Yeah, and that's where the NIV has unfortunately gotten confusing. And, yeah. and it more so in chapter 8 uh, where that where that kind of raises itself up there but um, but you know what I think that before the NIV people were still confused um, because it's so tempting to judge and evaluate ourselves based on our performance rather than based on what what God's done hence the reason Paul wrote this to the Romans you know they didn't have an NIV and they were still confused uh, the Galatian church was mightily confused um, because we're so used to the law. We're so in love with the law because, you know what? The law gives me a, stand, a sense of where I stand. I haven't killed anyone today yet. I haven't you know, stolen. I haven't lied. I must be okay with you. God, will you love me now? Well, even on your worst day, in your worst moment, in your worst sin, He loves us. That's the truth. And I'm fully persuaded by that fact. And because I because of that, I can rest. I mean, simply put, you're okay. No matter what you do or don't do, you're okay. You don't have to strive. You don't have to earn acceptance. You don't have to prove yourself. You're okay. You know what you can do now? 
Now you can just live. Just be yourself. That's freedom. Heavenly Father, we thank You for for You. We want to exalt in You and what You have done. You truly have given us what we don't deserve. You've given us Your very life. So that in all the trials and all the tribulations and all the difficulties, we can experience You and Your peace and Your love. You're not angry with us anymore. You're not against us. You're on our side. And I pray, Father, as we all go home tonight and and tomorrow and the the days ahead as we chew on what we've been talking about tonight, that You would really impress upon our hearts the truth of this abundance of grace and this gift of righteousness. And that we possess them now. And all we're needing to do is to trust You that they're true. In Your name we pray. Amen.